Thank you for listening to City Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit us at borocitychurch.com. That's B-O-R-O, citychurch.com. Additionally, if this podcast has been an encouragement to you, would you please email us to let us know? You can email us at sermons at borocitychurch.com. Thank you for listening. All right, y'all can be seated. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at City. If you want to turn over, we're going to be in Numbers 16 and 17 this morning as we continue our wilderness series, Numbers 16 and 17. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, we do have Bibles in the back. Uh, you're welcome to take one on your way out as our gift to you. Uh, but in the meantime, we'll have all the passages up on the screen. Now, I told Kevin last week that my only real issue with his sermon was that I was going to have to preach the next Sunday after. I mean, he just killed it. He preached the paint off the walls last week, so... Um, now, many of you are familiar uh, with the story of Steve Jobs and Apple Computers, right? 1976, Steve Jobs and a couple of other men founded Apple Computers with the goal of changing the world, what they said. And from 1976 to 1983, they did just that. They changed, they revolutionized the computer industry. By 1983, Steve Jobs was a billionaire because of all the work that he had done. In 1983, the company had gotten so large that they basically decided, we probably need uh, more help. Right? The board thought, you know, Steve Jobs is probably not able to handle all this by himself. Uh, there's arguments about whether or not he was too much of a jerk to do it by himself, according to the board. But anyway, they tell Steve, look, you need to go find a, a CEO to help you run Apple computers because it's gotten so big and things have been going so well. And Steve was, Steve was reluctant to this, obviously. You know, he founded the company. He's going to hand it off to somebody else. He's going to give significant power to somebody else. But anyway, he, he decides to do it. So they say, Steve, go out and find a CEO. Go out and find somebody to help you run Apple. And so Jobs sought to hire Pepsi's president, John Scully. And in perhaps one of the best recruiting lines in the history of business, here's what John Scully said that Jobs said to him. Do you want to sell sugar water for the rest of your life, or do you want to come with me and change the world? <laughs> now, John Scully's probably thinking, I thought I was doing okay with Pepsi, but, but okay, I guess I want to change the world. So he, he was apparently impressed by this, and he, he took the job. He decided to become Apple's CEO in 1983. And even though Jobs was resistant at first, uh, it went really well. They both would say that their relationship was great, that they worked well together. Uh, John Scully was a marketing genius, so he was doing all the marketing. He was keeping Apple relevant. He was keeping money flowing in. And Steve got to do what he was best at, which was create products, create computers, and work on the Mac side of the business. But you might imagine it didn't take very long for that to go south, for two powerful men who both ran companies coming together, trying to run one company together. And so Jobs, apparently, according to Scully and the board, not according to Steve, of course, uh, Jobs became more and more insubordinate, more and more frustrated by John trying to tell him what to do and trying to help him run the business. And so the board and John Scully uh, recommended that they take some power away from Steve. Steve was running Mac computers. He's spending money like crazy. He launched a product that was supposed to be revolutionary that failed miserably in two years. They thought, you know, he's, maybe he's lost it. Maybe he needs some help. So they took it away from him. Now, as you can imagine, Steve was not happy about this, right? And so Steve hatched a plot to get John kicked out of the company. So all of a sudden, you have this company that is flourishing, right? Changing the world, literally. But you have two people in power that can't work it out. They can't get along. Now, you might be able to, you know, look at Steve and say, hey, this is the company you founded. Of course, that's how you're going to react. Of course, you're going to be upset about having to share. But anyway, they, they go back and forth, and, and Steve basically ends up tendering his resignation. And in 1985, he resigns from Apple, the company that he started. 
And as you probably know, the story goes that he was hired back in 97 because the company was on the verge of bankruptcy. And he's largely given credit for the founding of iTunes and iPod and iPhone and all the things that have, again, changed the world. He helped re, uh, make the company relevant again, had helped them come back to prominence. Now, we can all relate to Steve, I think, on this, right? We all have tendencies where we have somebody who we love, somebody who uh, means a lot to us, somebody that we trust, uh, let us down. They hurt us, they betray us, they lie to us. Uh, they do something that we never thought they could do in a million years. And we're so hurt by that action that everything that happened before almost doesn't matter anymore, right? The person that you love the most all of a sudden becomes your enemy in an instant. If they've hurt you, if they betrayed you, if they've let you down. So we can all relate to Steve here. And I think the story that we're going to, that we're going to talk about this morning in numbers 16 and 17, we'll be able to relate to Steve uh, even more. Okay, so we're going to read the story in numbers 16 and 17. And we worked our way through the book of Numbers, you guys know, over and over again, what does Israel do to Moses? What do they do to God? They complain, they grumble, they don't like the food they have to eat, they get manna from heaven, which by all accounts is the most delicious thing I've ever heard of in my entire life. Uh, It's like biscuits with honey on it, right? I mean, it's pretty good. They complain about that. They complain about being in the wilderness. They say they want to go back to Egypt. They say they want to go back to slavery. At least slavery was better than being out here in the wilderness. And what they're actually doing ultimately is just doubting God. They're doubting that God has them in a tough season for a reason, that there's something good that's going to come of that. But every time, even at his worst, even when Moses is frustrated, even when he gets angry, ultimately he comes back again to reminding them of God's faithfulness and even begging God to forgive them. Several times God begs them, uh, begs God, he, Moses begs God to forgive the people for what they're doing. Now, some scholars have estimated that the group of Israelites that are with Moses could be anywhere from a couple hundred thousand to two million. So he has upwards of two million people grumbling and complaining at him all the time, over and over again. So I have two daughters under the age of five, and when they complain at the same time, like, I'm ready to just roll. Like, I'm, I mean, it just drives me crazy, right? Could you imagine the, the population of greater Nashville, a bunch of adult toddlers complaining at you all the time, right? So this shows Moses' character, that he is able to put up with this over and over again, continuing to forgive them, continuing to point them to God's faithfulness. It is really hard for me with my two daughters to point them to God's faithfulness whenever they're driving me crazy, to point myself to God's faithfulness. I can't imagine having to lead two million people doing that. So let's look at Numbers 16. Uh, Obviously, we're not going to be able to cover both chapters all the way through this morning, uh, but we're going to look at some of the high points, and and, and we'll get through the story uh, all the way. So let's go to Numbers 16.1. Now Korah, son of Izhar, son of Kohath, son of Levi... With Dathan, Abiram, sons of Eliab, and On, son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took 250 prominent Israelite men who were leaders of the community and representatives in the assembly. And they rebelled against Moses. They came together against Moses and Aaron and told them, You have gone too far. Everyone in the community is holy, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the Lord's assembly? When Moses heard this, he fell face down. And then he said to Korah and all his followers, Tomorrow morning the Lord will reveal who belongs to him, who is set apart, and the one he will let come near to him. He will let the one he chooses come near to him. Korah, you and all your followers are to do this. Take fire pans, and tomorrow place fire in them and put incense on them before the Lord. Then the man the Lord chooses will be the one who is set apart. It is you Levites who have gone too far. Moses also told Korah, Now listen, Levites, isn't it enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the Israelite community to bring you near to himself, to perform the work of the Lord's tabernacle, and to stand before the community to minister? 
He has brought you near and all your fellow Levites who are with you, but you are pursuing the priesthood as well. Therefore, it is you and all your followers who have conspired against the Lord. As for Aaron, who is he that you should complain about him? Then verse 12, Moses sent for Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, but they said, we will not come. Is it not enough that you, Moses, have brought us up from the land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness? Do you also have to appoint yourself to rule over us? And that's the word of the Lord from Numbers 16. So let's look at a couple of things here. First in, in, first, uh, first in verses 1 and 2, we see these four men who have rebelled against God, right? First we see Korah, who rebelled against Moses and God. Korah, he's Moses' and Aaron's son. It says that he's Kohath's son. Well, if you read back in the Old Testament, Kohath was actually, uh, his family was appointed to be the ones who carried all the furnishings in the tabernacle as they moved through the wilderness, Okay, so Korah is the leader of this, of this line of people who are helping move the tabernacle from place to place where God's presence dwells as they move through the wilderness. So Korah has one of the most prominent positions in the community already. Okay, so he's not lacking in leadership. He's not lacking in power. He's not lacking in favor with the Lord at all. Then you've got Dathan, Abiram, and On. And the text says that they're sons of Reuben. So the last time we see Reuben in the Old Testament, back in Genesis 49... Reuben actually had a, the birthright to a very powerful position in the community of Israel, but he ends up sleeping with his dad's girlfriend and loses his birthright, loses his power, loses his uh, position in the community. Okay, so we have a lot of jealousy going on here, right? We have, on the one hand, Korah, who has a very significant leadership position, but he wants more, right? He's helping move the tabernacle from place to place, but Aaron is the high priest. Aaron is the one who's making sacrifices for the people. So Korah sees Aaron and says, no, I want that. I want the most important position, not secondary. I don't want to be the VP. I want to be the president, right? Then you have these other guys who basically say, hey, we're supposed to have power in the community. Just because Reuben, our granddad or great-granddad or or however far back he is, just because he messed up doesn't mean that we should be punished for it. Because all these people are jealous. All of them are ultimately unforgiving toward God and Moses because they feel like they've been slighted. They're holding a grudge against them. They're saying, God is punishing us. God is not being fair to us. Moses is not being fair to us. He's exalted himself over the community. And that's what's funny about verse 3. They falsely accuse Moses and Aaron of exalting themselves above them. Of course, as we've seen, Moses continually is sacrificing himself. He's laying himself down. He's being humble before all these people. He's telling them over and over again, hey, stop, 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 right? He's not lording over them. He's not being a slave master to them at all. If anything, if we look through the Bible, he's actually really reluctant to have this position. Let's look at Exodus 3. This is God speaking here. So because the Israelites' cry for help has come to me, and I have also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them, therefore go, I am sending you, Moses, to Pharaoh, so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses asked God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And then Exodus 4, just a little bit later, Moses replies to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, either in the past or recently or since you've been speaking to your servant, because my mouth and my tongue are sluggish. The Lord said to him, Who placed a mouth on humans? Who makes a person mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak, and I will teach you what to say. And Moses in verse 13, Please, Lord, send someone else. Sometimes pastors feel that way. Just kidding. So if anything, Moses has been extremely passive, uncomfortable. He's not sought leadership. He's not tried to take over Israel. And yet these men, one of whom is his own cousin, are accusing him of exalting himself, of, of trying to do a power play in the community. They, also, they say in, in 
uh, the passages we just read, that the entire community is holy. So they basically say, look, we're all on an equal playing field here. We're all God's people. Why can't we all lead? But that's not how God set it up. We just saw God said, Moses, I want you to lead them out of slavery and into the wilderness to the promised land. And God earlier points to Aaron. He says, Aaron, you're the one who's going to make sacrifices. You're going to be the high priest, the chief priest in the community. So they're making all these false accusations against Moses. And he has really two options, right? There's two ways he can respond to this. He can respond like Steve Jobs and John Scully and start a war, try to take over power. Or he can immediately turn to the Lord and retaliate. That's his two options. That's the two options that all of us are faced with when it comes to forgiving somebody, when it comes to being hurt. We can start a war against them, or we can ask the Lord to help us forgive them. So let's see which one he does in verse 4. When Moses heard this, he punched Korah in the face. Is that what he said? Be my temptation. That's not what Moses did. Moses heard this, and he fell face down. Moses chooses the second option, right? He immediately humbles himself, falls face down, and gives it to the Lord. And Moses knows, right, that he's done nothing wrong. Again, he's the one who was trying not to take this position in the first place, but he's trying to be faithful to the Lord. He's trying to do the thing the Lord has asked him to do. So instead of sticking out his chest, which he could have done, he could have said, hey, God gave me this power. Y'all all need to submit. Chill out. Instead, he puts his face on the ground. Verse 10. And then he tries to reason with them. He has brought you near, and all your fellow Levites who are with you. But you are pursuing the priesthood as well. Therefore, it is you and all your followers, Korah, who have conspired against the Lord. As for Aaron, who is he that you should complain about him? Basically saying, look, God has set all this up. God has put this all in a certain place, and we all trust him. We believe that he's doing this for a reason. Why are you giving Aaron a hard time? Aaron's not trying to take power. I'm not trying to take power. It's God who has appointed us in this situation. And he says, look, guys, y'all have been raised up in this community. Korah, you have a great position already. The Lord has brought you near. He's already given you great opportunities. These other guys, look, you're one of God's people. You have great opportunities here. Moses is saying, it's not me you have a problem with. It's ultimately God, because God's the one who has set all of this up. Then in verse 12, Dathan and Abiram's response would be actually kind of funny if it weren't so sad. So Moses sent for Dathan and Abiram and the sons of Eliab, but they said, we will not come. Now this is Moses saying, I'm going to try to save these people. They won't come to him. We will not come. Is it not enough that you, Moses, brought us up from the land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness? Do you also have to appoint yourself as ruler over us? So that phrase, you brought us from a land flowing with milk and honey, where did he bring them from? Slavery. He brought them from Egypt, right? When God said that he was going to take them out of Egypt and take them through the wilderness to the promised land, it's the promised land that's the land flowing with milk and honey. And these guys are so twisted, they're so mad, they're so angry, they're so lacking in faith, that they're calling Egypt the promised land. They're calling the place where they were in slavery and beaten and treated like like second-class citizens. They're calling that the promised land. And that's what sin does to us. That's what unforgiveness and bitterness does to us. It makes us think that other things are better than just forgiving, than just trusting the Lord. And we've already seen at this point, right, that these guys are, are wanting to overthrow God's plan. Verse 20, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. says, separate yourselves from this community so I may consume them in, uh, instantly. So, he has, so Moses wants to put in this offering, right? He says, put the incense on the fire. We'll, we'll, blow it. we'll send it up to the sky. It was a priestly activity. Basically, the priest would offer this incense. The smell would go up, and then God would either accept it or reject it, right? Verse 20 gives us the answer. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, separate yourselves from this community so I may consume them instantly. So God did not accept the offerings of Korah and those people. And a lot of times, when these sacrifices happened in the Old Testament, it wasn't the smell itself. It wasn't literally like God was like, 
that smells really good and that smells terrible. It was, it was the heart of the people who did it, right? It was the heart of the ones who were actually putting the sacrifice out. It's typically what it's tied to. And so we know these guys have had a bad attitude. They've had bad purposes. They've been grumbling and complaining, not trusting the Lord. Of course their sacrifices aren't going to work, right? We shouldn't be surprised by that. But it's really interesting that not only does God say that he's going to destroy Korah and the 250 people who have rebelled against him, he says everybody. He says, separate yourselves from the whole community, and I'm going to consume all of them instantly. But here's Moses again, being humble and patient and sacrificial in verse 22. But Moses and Aaron fell face down and said, God, God, who breathes breath to all? When one man sins, will you vent your wrath on the whole community? The Lord replied to Moses, okay, fine, Moses. Tell the community, get away from the dwellings of Korah and Dathan and Abiram. So Moses got up and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And then he warned the community, get away now from the tents of these wicked men. Don't touch anything that belongs to them, or you will be swept away because of all their sins. Okay, so Moses accepts God's judgment on Korah and the other guys. He says, that's right, you should take them out. You should, you know, you know pour out your wrath on them. But God threatens to destroy everyone, and, and, and Moses appeals to his character. This is something that Trevor talked about several weeks ago. God said, he says, God, you're the God of life. Why would you kill everybody, right? You're the God of life. Surely you're not going to destroy everybody just because of these 250 men who have rebelled. Now, on the one hand, God could have destroyed everybody and been totally justified. Now, as we read through the book of Numbers, I don't think anybody in the community is innocent at this point of grumbling against God and complaining against God, right? God could have wiped the whole thing out, and he would have been totally justified. But these people are not innocent, right? And in fact, Moses could have easily said too, hey, you know what? I am about tired of these people. I am ready for you to just take them out. Go ahead, God, get rid of them. But that's not what he does. In other words, instead he falls face down and he sacrifices himself to forgive them. On the one hand, it required sacrifice from Moses because he stood between God and the people. God said, Moses, get out of the way. I'm gonna destroy everybody. And Moses basically disobeys God and says, I'm not getting out of the way. God, you should not kill all of them right? The other way that he sacrifices is that he's sacrificing his own comfort because he's saying, leave these grumbling and complaining people here. And Lord knows they're going to grumble and complain against him again, right? So some people will see this passage and they will say, God's perfect. God's all-knowing. God's all-powerful. Why would he listen to Moses, right? Why would he listen to what Moses has to say? He could do it. God could have destroyed everybody and been totally justified in doing so. Is God a liar? Did God change his mind? Is God confused? I don't think those are the questions we should be asking in this passage. Although people have spent books and books writing stuff about this passage, about how God must change his mind and God must lie and all this kind of stuff. But the Bible says clearly that God does not change and that God does not lie and that God is not confused. So instead of looking at it and saying God's a liar, God's confused, God doesn't know what he's doing, we should actually focus on the fact that God listened to Moses' prayer. That the God of the universe who knows everything, who can do anything, who's powerful enough to create the world with a word, by speaking a word, listens to little Moses and grants his request. That Moses' prayer actually had an impact on the world around him. That potentially millions of people were saved because of Moses' prayer. So we don't know why God did that. Maybe it was a test of Moses' faith to see how Moses was going to respond. Maybe there's something else in God's mind that we can't understand. But the one thing that he has revealed to us is that he is powerful, he's all-knowing, he's just, but he's also near. He is totally different from us, and yet he is totally with us. The incarnation of Christ is no other example better than that, that God became a man. 
that God literally became one of us. So you remember how Moses, I said that he was sacrificing his own comfort because obviously these people were going to complain again. Well, let's go down to verse 41. You can probably guess what's going to happen here. So the next day, the entire Israelite community complained about Moses and Aaron, saying, you have killed the Lord's people. Okay, so just before this, Moses had uh, begged for their forgiveness. They'd been forgiven. Korah and all his followers had been killed by God. They'd been punished for their sin. But he turns to Moses and Aaron and says, you're the guys, you guys killed the Lord's people. When the community assembled against them, Moses and Aaron turned toward the tent of meeting and suddenly the cloud covered it and the Lord's glory appeared. Moses and Aaron went to the front of the tent of the meeting and the Lord said to Moses, get away from this community so that I may consume them instantly. But what does Moses do? What does Aaron do? They fall face down. Then Moses told Aaron, take your fire pan, place fire from the altar in it and add incense. Go quickly to the community and make atonement for them. Because wrath has come from the Lord, the plague has begun. He stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was halted. So after Moses begs God to spare them from judgment, they come right back at Moses and say, hey, you're killing everybody, Moses. Well, Moses is the one that kept 90% of them alive, right? Moses is the one who's begging for their forgiveness. Moses is the one who's standing between them and God over and over again. When God tells them to move, they don't do it. They keep begging for forgiveness. So these people have just seen Korah. The the text says that the earth swallowed them up. So they literally saw all of them killed by God, being judged for their lack of faith, for their evil. And they still haven't, it still hasn't clicked in their mind yet that Moses is the best thing they've got going, right? They need, if Moses isn't there, they're all already gone. Now, if I were Moses, I probably would have lit the place on fire by now. (laughs) Like I, like I would have been like, God, I don't need you to take care of them. I got this. I'll take care of them, all right? I'm tired of them. I'll take care of them. But that's why Moses is a better man than I am. (laughs) Moses again falls face down before the Lord and begs God to spare these people. And more than that, he tells Aaron to go and make a sacrifice for them. So again, Moses shields his people from God's right and good judgment. He takes a chance on angering God, takes a chance on sacrificing his own comfort. Because again, you know these people are probably going to complain again. But he does it because he loves them. He forgives them over and over and over again, sacrificing himself in numerous ways in order to have them forgiven. But in number 17, God does stamp out one thing for good. There's one complaint that God says, I'm ending this complaint once and for all in number 17. Verse 1, the Lord instructed Moses, speak to the Israelites and take one staff from them from each ancestral tribe, 12 staffs from all the leaders of their tribes. Write each man's name on his staff. Write Aaron's name on Levi's staff because there is to be one staff for the head of each tribe. Then place them in the tent of meeting in front of the testimony where I meet with you. The staff of the man I choose will sprout, and I will rid myself of the Israelites' complaints that they've been making about you. So Moses is like, thank you. One complaint we can get rid of, right? So Moses spoke to Israelites, and each of their leaders gave him a staff, one for each of the leaders of their tribes, 12 staffs in all. Aaron's staff was among them. Moses placed the staffs before the Lord in the tent of the testimony, and the next day Moses entered the tent of testimony and saw that Aaron's staff, representing the house of Levi, had sprouted, formed buds, blossomed, and produced almonds. I love how almonds has an exclamation point there. Almonds! <laughs> CSB, baby. So if you remember, Korah and the other people, they tried to take Moses and Aaron's place as leaders of the community, right? Aaron in particular, like I said, he's the highest ranking priest in the community. He's the one charged with offering sacrifices for the people. And God had already appointed Aaron to this role. Okay, so God says, look, I'm just going to reiterate what I've already said. Put all the staffs out there, and I'll show you which one, uh, who's supposed to be in charge. And so Aaron already had this role appointed by God. 
And Aaron's staff, laying there with the 12 other staff, just looks like an ordinary staff, right? Everybody's staff looks the same, as far as we can tell. But his is the only one that sprouts almonds. Almond joy. Almonds, baby. Almond joy. That was, see, if Trevor was preaching, y'all would get an almond joy joke there. But. So here's why almonds are important. Here's why there's an exclamation point. Okay, I'll explain it to you. It'll make sense. So almond trees were one of the first trees to sprout in the spring. So you go through this hard winter. They're storing up all their food because there's no plants. There's no trees. There's no uh, anything being provided for them. But when spring comes around, one of the first trees that sprouts life is almonds. Almonds are one of the first things they see. And so for Israelites, almonds are a sign of life. Okay, so when they see that almond tree sprout, they know, okay, the harvest is here. All the plants are going to be sprouting again. All of our food is going to be here again. Okay, so that's why it's actually really exciting to see the almonds. It's a sign of life. Okay, so when Aaron's staff sprouts almonds, it means that God is reiterating that he has ordained Aaron to be the one to make atonement for the people. He's the one that's going to cover their sins and give them life instead of the death that they deserve because of their sin. And if you aren't picking up on some Jesus stuff by now, I don't know what to tell you. It's coming, though. Okay, so that's about as quickly and succinctly as I can tell the story. Uh, But the question is, then, what does it mean for us? Right? So we're not just reading Scripture for information. We're not just reading it because it's a good story and, oh, man, Moses forgave them, and how sweet is Moses? We read Scripture to be challenged and to be comforted. We should always be reading Scripture thinking, how is this challenging me? How is this comforting me? Okay, so let's look at that first. We're going to look at how it challenges us. This story challenges us to see ourselves as rebels. So if we compare ourselves to Moses, we look at Moses in the story, we're going to give up pretty quickly, right? There's no way that we, I can forgive as much as Moses forgave. I can't live up to what Moses is doing here. But like I said earlier, I would have been tempted to take them out myself. I would not have been as humble and patient and kind as he was. But the truth is, in this story, we're all a lot more like Korah, aren't we? We're vindictive, vengeful, vengeful short-tempered, selfish, unforgiving, bitter. We like to think we're Moses. We like to read stories and think that we're the hero of the story. We like to think that we can do good, that we can muster up and be as good as Moses is, but the truth is we can't. Okay, so us being Moses is not the part of the story here. Now, Moses was not perfect by any stretch, right? Moses gets angry at them. Moses sins. He's not a perfect man, but he was a godly man with flaws. But when we read this story, we don't say, oh, you know, I'm just a godly person with flaws. We put ourselves in the place of Korah, and when we do that, we see a fuller picture of who we are. See, if they had been sacrificially forgiving, if they had not been bitter toward Moses and God, none of this would have happened, right? Their greatest sin was being unforgiving toward God and Moses because of the situation they were in. They felt like they had been wronged, and they were mad at God and mad at Moses for doing it. They were wrong, actually, because God and Moses had not sinned against them, but their bitterness caused them to think that he had. They made the situation in their mind way bigger than what it was. Have you all ever done that? Ever gotten in a fight with your spouse or a friend or something, and in your mind, it's just way worse than it actually was. You know, you say something, I'm really good at this with my wife, she says something, and then I get frustrated, and then I find out she actually didn't mean anything by it at all. She was just telling me to take out the trash. Um, But they ultimately just didn't trust God's plan. They didn't trust him, they didn't trust God, and so they didn't obey him. And so that's our challenge with this story, to realize that we are much more like Korah than we are Moses. That we are often unwilling to forgive God, and unwilling to forgive others for the situation that we're in. But understanding this is good, because it gives us a picture of our heart. It gives us a better picture of who we are. Okay, so we don't have to think that we're the hero of the story. We realize that we need help. Okay, so number two, this passage comforts us. We're comforted by God's forgiveness through Christ. Okay, so if we're Korah, 
in this story, then who is Moses? He's a picture of Christ. Christ is the one who continually forgives those who rebel against him. Christ is the one who did nothing wrong and yet was still mocked and ridiculed and accused by his people. Christ is the one who stood in our place between death and life, taking on God's wrath toward our sin in our place. When God said I should punish them for their sins, Christ is the one who fell face down on the cross, making atonement for our sins, sacrificial forgiveness in its greatest form. But this time when he went into the tomb, it wasn't Aaron's ordinary staff that sprung up with life so that people's sins could be forgiven. It was Christ's own broken and bloodied body. What looked like an ordinary man lying dead in an ordinary tomb turned out to be the sacrificial forgiveness that changed the world and saved all of us. His resurrection means that once and for all, death is dead and sin is wiped clean. Forgiveness in the highest form. Now, this isn't an excuse for us to not be sacrificially forgiving, by the way. Okay, So let's not say, well, thank you, Jesus. Now I can continue going on being a little Korah and being unforgiving and angry and bitter. Right, that's not what the Bible says. Let's look at Matthew 6. Here's the strong words that Jesus has for people like Korah, like us so many times. For if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive others, your Father will not forgive your offenses. Now we may be tempted to think here, hey, Jesus, come on now. You're the Savior. I'm the messed up one. Right? Remember, that's the deal we made. Right? I get the forgiveness. You get the sacrifice. Everything's good. But Jesus does not leave us there. He does not allow us to stay Korahs. He does not allow us to do it. When we believe in Christ, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now we have God living inside of us, empowering us to be Moses in this story. Only through Christ, the true Moses, can we be Moses in this story. He sends us the Holy Spirit so that we can have new lives shaped not by our rebellion, but by Christ's righteousness. Let's look at Ephesians 4. And don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you along with all malice. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. In other words, Christians, listen, Christians do not get to say, I can't forgive. You can't say it. You can't say, I can't forgive. You can say, I choose not to forgive, but you can't say, I can't forgive. Because you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, it is no longer impossible to forgive others. So we're called to forgive others in this passage, in the one that Matthew, we just read from Matthew. That we're called to forgive others like the Father forgave us through Christ. And we've been given the Holy Spirit in order to actually do that. In fact, this passage in Ephesians 4 says that it grieves the Holy Spirit. It grieves God when we say that we can't forgive. Because not only is it not true that we can no longer forgive, but it actually shows that we lack trust in God's forgiveness of us. It shows a lack of doubt that God is good and powerful enough to forgive us. And that he's good and powerful enough to help us forgive others through the Spirit. Here's what Paul says in Colossians 3. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a, has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, you are also to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. So God's love for you is not just a good example for you to look to and say, man, isn't God sweet? I'm so glad that God forgives. It's powerful enough to actually change who you are and actually change how you view other people. So if you want to be Moses in this story, to know really what sacrificial, forgiving love looks like, look at the cross. On the cross is both the forgiveness that we need for our own sins, for the ways that we hurt others, 
and the power to help us forgive others in the same way. The C.S. Lewis quote, it's really good. I wouldn't have included it if it wasn't really good, right? So C.S. Lewis says, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. The heart, it's so hard for us to forgive other people because we always think we're better than the other person, right? We always think it's them that need forgiveness. When you're sitting in here and you hear a sermon, you're like, oh, that's right. Mama needs to hear that, right? My friend, my neighbor, my coworker, he needs to hear that. We forget that we need to hear it too, right? We forget that we're the ones that need to hear it too. We need forgiveness from God for the sins that we've committed. Our lives are inexcusable no matter how good we think we are. We sin. We're born into it. We do it. If you have kids, you know that it doesn't take long for us to sin. So we should be looking at this saying, okay, I am Korah. I'm the rebel. I'm the one who needed Christ to die for me. So nobody else in this world is any less than I am. It is an equal playing field at the cross. Everybody deserves the same forgiveness. Everybody should be given the same forgiveness that we are given. Now, it's going to be your temptation here to brush this aside. Say, Brandon, if you only know what has been done to me, God, if you only knew what I've been through, you would understand why I can't forgive that person, right? And listen, I get it, okay? My mom emotionally abandoned me when I was young, basically chose drugs over me. My stepdad was abusive. I had a woman who I was going to propose to three weeks later who ended up cheating on me and leaving me for another guy who I thought I was going to marry. Now, if you know my wife, you'll know that worked out really well for me. So, not complaining. I'm not complaining. I have forgiven her. for. The... But I've been blackmailed by coworkers, and I have had countless people that I have tried to help, and I have tried to pour my life into, turn their back on me like I didn't even try. Okay? I get it. Forgiveness is hard. But more importantly, we have a Savior who gets it. We have a Savior who was abused and rejected and abandoned by the people that he loved, his best friends and all of us every day. Every day in our own pride and selfishness and grumbling, we do the same thing to Jesus that Korah did to Moses. But he still loves us. He still sacrificed himself for us. And he continues to stand between us and death. So we don't look to Moses and Aaron to save us. We don't look to them as good examples. Okay, they served their purpose for a time. But they died, and other people took their place. There were other leaders in Israel. There were other chief priests who went along. Instead, they point us to Christ. Let's look at Hebrews 7. But because he, Jesus, remains forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. For this is the kind of high priest we need, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as the high priests do, first for their own sins and then for those of the people. He did this once for all time when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the promise of the oath which came after the law appoints a son, Jesus, who has been perfected forever. Okay, so Moses and Aaron, they made sacrifices for the people, but they were sinners themselves, right? They still screwed up. This pastor says we need somebody who doesn't need to sacrifice themselves, when Aaron sacrificed for all the people in Israel, he was also sacrificing for himself. It wasn't like he didn't need it either, right? But Christ never sinned. And that's the promise that we rest on. A perfect priest, a perfect sacrifice, once and for all. A priest who lives to intercede for us rebels. Through Christ's death and resurrection, he stands in heaven right now, eternally, face down for our forgiveness. Eternally. It says he lives to intercede for us. 
He's always there to forgive us. It's not like Jesus got on the cross, died, resurrected, hung out for a couple days, went to heaven, and took a break. Okay? The work is done, but he is still always interceding for us because he's alive. His body coming out of the tomb, the fact that he will never die again, means that we will never need another sacrifice. We'll never need another priest. We'll never need forgiveness from God ever again. All we need to do is place our faith in Christ. So the good news is that we don't have to forgive others in our own strength. Right? All of us would admit that either we need to be forgiving, but we don't think we can do it, or we don't want to forgive, but we know we should. And in both instances, if you believe in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you to help you do it. You have the power to forgive, you have the ability to forgive, and he empowers us to take steps towards reconciliation with others. And by the way, if you're in this room and you're sitting next to somebody who needs to forgive you for something or you want them to forgive you, who's hurt you, who's abandoned you, you're not the Holy Spirit. Okay, so don't, Get in the car and leave and say, hey, babe, you hear that? You hear that? You probably need to, probably need to forgive me. I'm waiting. I apologize. Right? That's not our job, okay? Now, I hope that this leads to good conversations about how you should forgive each other and how you should rest in Christ and how you should pray together, all that, okay? But don't go to the person who's offended you and start quoting Bible verses and telling them how they're dumb for not forgiving you, okay? You are not the Holy Spirit. Forgiveness requires sacrifice, and we cannot forgive others without first sacrificing our own pride to submit ourselves to Christ. And we can't forgive others without submitting to the Holy Spirit's power to help us. If we keep trying to do it on our own, we're never going to get anywhere. If we try to guilt ourselves, if we try to guilt other people into forgiveness, it's not going to happen. People don't love Jesus because of guilt. Okay? People don't forgive each other because of guilt. They don't love their spouses because of guilt. There's a lot more, a lot deeper thing going on there than just guilt and frustration and trying hard. Right? So we have to fall face down before God. We have to be changed by the Holy Spirit. We have to have our hearts completely renewed. Now this doesn't mean, by the way, that we forget about past sins, okay? Doesn't mean that we forget about the hurt. Doesn't mean we just wash over the hurt and say, you know what, we're good, don't worry about it, okay? Doesn't mean that. But it does mean that in our hurt and in our anger and in our frustration, we can acknowledge the sin while also at the same time forgiving others for the way that they've sinned against us. So we can be like John Scully and Steve Jobs and Cora and billions of other people who choose to wage war instead of strive for peace. Or we can look to Christ, whose sacrificial love brought us forgiveness we didn't deserve so that we can forgive or, uh, offer forgiveness to those who also don't deserve it. Christ, the true and better Moses, gives us the, the ability to be like Moses in our story today, but only if his forgiveness changes us first. Only if we believe his forgiveness, only if we know that we've truly been forgiven, only if we are at peace with God, can we truly forgive other people? Korah would have said, hey, I love God. I love that God has shown us grace and mercy. Korah would have said that. There's no doubt he would have said that. Even in his rebellion, I think he would have acknowledged that when he was in his right mind, right? But we have to be changed by God's forgiveness first, and that was the problem. He didn't believe that God really loved him deep down inside. He didn't really believe that God had forgiven him. He thought that God was holding out on him. He thought that Moses was holding out on him instead of knowing that God had a good plan for the wilderness that they were going through. So I just want to close this this morning with a big old chunk of encouragement from 1 John. Okay, I'm just going to read this. Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Love consists in in this. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. 
Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we must also love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us, and his love is made complete in us. And this is how we know that we remain in him and he is in us. He has given us his spirit. And if we have seen and we testify that the Father has sent his Son as the world's Savior, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in him and he in God. And we have come to know and to believe that love, the love that God has for us, God is love. And the one who remains in love remains in God and God remains in him. In this, love is made complete with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother and sister, whom he, cannot see, who he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And we have this command from him. The one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. Let's pray.